We need men. That is uh, absolutely for sure. You know, we live in a, in a time where, in a culture where, unfortunately, um, fatherlessness is the norm. And it's okay. Absentee fathers, you don't even, even if you're present, you know, physically present, it's okay to be emotionally disconnected from the family, spiritually disconnected from the family. We talked about it yesterday with a group of guys that got together. Uh, but I celebrate fathers, man, today that are, are passionate about uh, their families, passionate about Christ. And uh, really, honestly, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yesterday, we got together with a group of men and we sat and we just encouraged one another about what it means to be actually present and active and the responsibilities that we have. So whether that's with your family, uh, your, your job, your society, whatever you do, whatever role you play, you have a important part. Uh, you know, even when you look at the absentee of fathers, don't turn here, but Ezekiel 22 talks about how God looked for a man. It says, God says, I looked, I searched for a man and I couldn't find one. Um, and, and so when God can't find it, you know there is a drought and an epidemic of men that are, that are needed. Uh, let me also say really quickly, as we talk about engaging men and we talk about engaging fathers, um, you know, last week, I'm off of social media, so I didn't actually find this out until later after church when we were down at the pier, uh, found out about the, the shooting in Orlando. And I just wanted to just quickly just announce, you know, that's something that we should be praying for just because that didn't hit home. Maybe it did, but maybe, you know, just because it didn't hit close to you doesn't mean we should be disconnected from it. And even that, even that shows the need for men to be engaged. That was a young man that walked into that club and shot up that club. And his, you know, his, his, his father is like, well, I, I, man, I didn't even know he was a homosexual. Like the, the passage we're going to be in today, we're going to see a man that knows 12 of his sons to the T, to the T. And it's very, very important for a father to be uh, involved and active. What if that man was being discipled? What if that man was being engaged? Not just him, but, you know, it got lost in the news because of the craziness. Uh, the Charleston Nine shooting, the, the, you know, the, the church that was meeting in Bible study, young man walks in, sits through Bible study, and then shoots nine people uh, in an African-American, historical African-American church in South Carolina. Another young man. So normally when you see this, same thing, what is his name? Adam Lanza walks into a walks into a, a movie theater and shoots up the movie theater. Normally, you see these crimes being done by men. Listen, we need fathers. We need men to be actively present and engaging in our children's lives. And so uh, because of that, man, when it's Father's Day, man, I want to celebrate and, and rejoice over men that are passionate about uh, being a father and being a man. So thank you and, and happy Father's Day to all of the fathers. Listen, we're taking a slight detour today from the Bride of Christ series. We've been going through a series on the church, really just trying to dive in, taking our church, church experience and moving it off the table and just trying to follow what the word says about the church uh, and, and try to, you know, try to bring up different topics and different themes of you guys have submitted questions and told us what you wanted to hear about the church. And so we've tried to address and talk through uh, some of the things as it relates to the church. Today, I need to just take a slight detour um, just to talk about fatherhood and talk about men, talk to men. Uh, ladies, don't check out. This is good for you. If you're single, this is good. This is what you should be looking for in a husband that prayerfully one day will be a father of your children. Uh, and the men that's in this room, I pray that the word uh, would encourage us. So let, let me just kind of give you just a quick overview of where we were and where we're going as it relates to the series 
We have one more week left in the Bride of Christ series, and uh, that, that last week, we need to talk about discipleship. We need to talk about uh, really the one another's of scriptures, and I want to roll out next week. Please be here. I want to roll out something called DNA groups. So we're going to preach on it, talk about it, and then you'll leave with an actual pamphlet of what uh, DNA groups looks like. DNA stands for Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. It's something that our church is seriously passionate about. We don't believe that anybody, not just men, but women as well, no one should be going through church unengaged by somebody else. We do that through relationship. In fact, Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good work. And so we'll do that next week. We'll walk through DNA groups, through a sermon, through the Bible, um, not bringing my own thoughts in, but we'll do it through the scriptures. And then we'll leave and give you guys a pamphlet on, uh, on that. And then as you saw through the announcements, we'll walk through a prayer series, four-week series on prayer. What does it mean? Um, why should I pray? Who am I praying to? Why is he deserving of my prayers? Uh, you know, what does that look like? Many of us, for honest, we struggle with a consistent prayer life. And so we pray, uh, but most of the time it, it's like that genie in the bottle, right? We pray, we pull them out when we need them, uh, but don't really have a consistency in our prayer life. And my prayer is that through the next four weeks, through the month of July, we'll be able to walk through what it means, what the Bible has to say about prayer. And then in the fall, we will go through another series, another sermon on a, a book sermon, just like we did with Colossians, where we walk through every single verse of Colossians. Did you guys enjoy Colossians? Yeah. Amen. Amen. I think the Lord really spoke to our church uh, through that book. And so we'll do that again, but we'll go to an Old Testament book. We'll go to Jonah. We're going to go through the entire book of Jonah's four chapters. And now if you're like, man, that whole story is just about a man getting swallowed by a fish. Listen, I can promise you there's so much more in that book. And in preparation for that series, if you guys want to read through that, it's four. It's one of those books that you can just you can read sitting down one time and just knock it out. I pray that you would do that a few times um, as we prep for that. Today, if you could turn to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, as we talk about fathers. If you need help uh, looking for Genesis, uh, there is prayer right afterwards that we can... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Genesis, the first book. Maybe you don't have any familiarity with the Bible. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Uh, go to Genesis and then flip to chapter number 49. I am eager to, to preach, so I'm just going to jump right in. We'll start at verse number one. Everybody have it? All right. Genesis 49.1 says this. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O, o sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Verse three, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Verse number five, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence and their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For, their, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willing, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. 
Cursed be their great anger, for it is fierce, for their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Verse number eight, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Verse number 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until, the tri until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Verse number 11, binding his foil to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. Last verse. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. I want to preach from the topic entitled, A Father's Prophetic Voice. A Father's Prophetic Voice. Let us pray. Father, this morning we do sit in anticipation of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the fathers that are represented in this room. Each and every father, we are grateful for them. Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. Through your word, we pray that you would encourage and convict us. We pray that your word would uh, do something deep in our behavior, but also will really do it through our heart, which ultimately does impact our behavior. And so, Father, encourage us. Pray that your word would be a light today unto our feet and a light unto our path. So many of us as fathers are uh, not exposed to your word consistently, and I pray that today we would see the need for that. It's in Christ's name we do give glory. Amen. A father's prophetic voice is where I want to talk about today. How privileged we are today that we get to sit and look at a father's last words, a father's la prophetic last words. Why is that important? Because there's something vitally important about a man's last words. If I knew that I only had a short amount of time to live, I would only offer up my very most important words. If you knew that you only had a short amount of time to live, you just wouldn't say anything. You'd say something that you think is absolutely profound. If I knew that I only had a short amount of time to live, I'd probably pull my wife in and share old times, share some old memories with her. My, my dying request, request would probably be that she not get remarried. I'm just saying I'd probably slip that in somewhere. Um, I'd probably pull in my, my closest friends and talk to them about times that we've shared, try to share something profound as I can with them. Uh, same thing with my sons. I, I know I'd pull my sons in and tell them, man, I want to see you men grow up. Well, I can't see it, but I pray that you men would grow up and be godly men that are faithful to your wives, serve your wives, serve the church, be faithful to what it is, be faithful to Jesus, love Jesus. Those are some things that I probably share with my son. Try to give them some profound, uh, some profound direction. Listen, Jacob does that. Jacob pulls his sons in in this passage, but he doesn't, he doesn't just give them profound words. No, that's not what Jacob does here. No, Jacob, these, the words that Jacob gives us is not some spontaneous thoughts from a dying man. These words that he gives us are carefully prepared words from, from a prophetic poet. That is what we're getting today in Jacob. The first lesson we can learn before we even dive into the text verse by verse, the first lesson we can learn is that fathers speak prophetically into the lives of their children. 
Every father should be able, those of us that have trusted Jesus, and if you haven't, thank you for coming. We are glad that you are here. If you've trusted Jesus, every father in here has a responsibility, whether you have a daughter, whether you have a son, every one of us in here has a divine responsibility to be uh, as prophetic with our children, speaking into their lives. A month before I got married, my father called me. Every now and then he does this. Um, where, where I know the Spirit's leading a minute because he just hangs up right after he says it. Like he doesn't want to have dialogue after it. Uh, but the month before I got married, he picks up the phone, and he calls me, and he says, hey, all of my life I, I've struggled with procrastination, and I see the same things in you, so you want to be careful of that. And then he hangs up the phone. I'm like, <laughs> like, did you just call me to tell me I was a slacker and then just hang up on me? But, but, but that, that was something that he saw in me. He didn't pat me on, hey, thank you, man. I'm so happy to see that you're getting married in a month. No, no, I see this in you, and you need to be careful of this. And then he confessed his own sin because I struggled with that as well. That is what we need fathers to do. Do you know that here in Bed-Stuy, 19% of kids here in Bed-Stuy are raised in a single mother home. Not a single parent home, a single mother home. Now listen, if, you, if you're raising a child, if you're a mother in here, thank you for what you do. I don't want you to hear me beating you up. You're doing an amazing job. I'm not trying to beat you up, but we need prophetic fathers. And, and if, you, if it's not the biological father, then there's men in this church that should be able to walk with your son through his adulthood. We need Fathers, I'm convinced that our, our kids are exposed to, I was going to say a lot more than we were exposed to, which may be true, but our kids are exposed to so much stuff. I mean, there's TV, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's Snapchat, there's Periscope. I still don't understand Periscope. I'm trying to, trying to get it. I do have Periscope, but I just don't get it. There's peer pressure. Uh, there's a lot going on. A lot of voices in our children's ear, uh, but I would argue that the, a father, a prophetic father, must be the loudest, not just the loudest voice in our kid's ear, because we're not going to be the only. So get that off your mind. I'm the only one speaking into my child's ear. It's not true. There's other things fighting for his attention. We must be the loudest, but we must also be the most prophetic voice in our children's ear. Let me just put this on the table before we walk through this, because what we run the risk of doing is looking at Jacob and saying, man, this family had it together. Like, man, they have, they have no issues. It's easy for Jacob to do that because they didn't have any issues. Listen, this is an extremely dysfunctional family. As we walk through the text today, you'll see how dysfunctional they are. Now, why does that serve as a comfort for us? Because everybody in here has some level of dysfunction in their family. I don't care how, how nice your family seems to be in public. Behind closed doors, there's layers of dysfunction within all of our families, whether it's your immediate family or not. If you are just, you have little kids and you're just starting to build your family, listen, husband and wife, you will grow up and realize that you are creating dysfunction even within your family. One day they're going to look back and be like, ah, this was dysfunctional. We pray that the Lord would which really shield our kids from dysfunction. And so this family is dysfunctional, and we're, we're going to see that. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. I only read to verse 12, which really highlights four of the sons. So we saw Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and we saw Judah. Only four is what we're dealing with today. But Jacob has 12. 
And Jacob knew all 12. Why? Because if you read the rest of it, and I encourage you guys to read the rest of the chapter, he speaks into the life of every single one of them. Remember when I said the young man that walked into the club and shot up the club, the father was like, oh man, I didn't didn't know he was dealing with this. I didn't know he was dealing with that. Jacob doesn't have that issue. Jacob knows his sons and he speaks into the life of each one of his sons. We're only gonna deal with four of them today. Now listen, I I, want to highlight this before we walk through. This passage is a, what, uh, what Jacob is speaking into the life of his sons is a blessing. How do I know that? The subscription above this story says Jacob blesses his sons. In fact, if you go to the end of the chapter, after he speaks in every one of their lives, verse 28 of the same chapter says, all these were the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them. As he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. So please listen to me. What we are about to walk through is a blessing. Why do I have to say that to you? Because once you read it, you're going to be like, that don't sound like a blessing. (laughs) Like the first three sons lose their inheritance. But yet the scripture said, this is a blessing. You know what? One of the most blessed things you can do, tell your son the truth. Like so many of us sugarcoat with our kids. We let them go through a recital. They mess up the whole recital. We'll be like, man, you did a great job. Like, no, no, you need to practice. You did not do a good job. You need to practice. Well, we need to encourage our sons. Listen, we want to encourage them to be lazy and, and, and grow up and be dysfunctional because they didn't really practice. No, stay on your sons. We need to do that, not with just stuff like recitals and football games and basketball games, but we need to do that with sin. Jacob calls his sons out on their sin. How many of us see the sin in our kids and just let it pass? God didn't do that in the gospel. What if God said, you know what? As the father of all creation, I see the dysfunction of my creation, ah, but I'm not going to deal with it. Like our salvation would not be secure. He didn't sweep our sin under the rug. He sent Jesus and dealt with our sin. That's what fathers do. That's what fathers do. And so... Jacob is going to walk through each one of the 12. We're going to do four today. And then uh, as homework, you guys are going to go home and you're, you're going to read the rest of it. Now, remember, this is a blessing. Three of them lose their inheritance. The fourth one doesn't, but three of them do, which shows us the blessing in the text is not based on materialistic stuff. How many of us be like, oh, the Lord is going to bless me and he's going to bless me with material This is called a blessing, Jacob's blessings to his son, and they lost their inheritance. They lost land. So the blessing isn't in materialistic stuff. The blessing is in godly living. That's the blessing that their their father is speaking into their lives. Let's walk through this together. Verse number one. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Don't miss this. Jacob is calling his sons together. It's something so powerful when a man can get around the table with his kids. It's something so important when a a, a father is able to spend time, not just time as in I'm at the PTA meetings, I'm at the basketball game, but actually be able to call our sons together so that I can share something, impart something profound to you based on my relationship with the Lord. That's what we're getting here. Like David does the same thing. 1 Kings chapter 2, David calls Solomon in. We talked about this yesterday in the men's meeting. David calls Solomon in, tells him that he needs to be obedient to the word. That's what David does. Now, 
most of you are like, well, I'm too busy to do that. I'm too busy to really call my sons and my daughters in. I'm too busy for that. Are you busier than the king of Israel? David calls his son in Solomon and says, you're about to take the throne, but here's some stuff you need to know. Boom, boom, boom. He walks him through practical principles about being obedient to the word of God. What he's giving him is he's giving him an overflow of his own relationship with the Lord. That's what fathers do. Our kids get the overflow of us spending time with the Lord. So we're better husbands because we spent time with the Lord. We're better fathers because we've spent time with the Lord. If you're in here and you're like, man, I, I got a, a, a guy that I'm dating that's serious about me. I'm not sure if he's really passionate about the Lord. I would caution you because this is a man that should be spending time with the Lord and being able to be a better father and a better husband to you. And so David wasn't too busy. Neither is Jacob. Jacob's on his deathbed. There's more things that he's the patriarch of his family. There's more things that he could have been doing, but he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to call my sons together. Not just call. Now, remember I said this is a dysfunctional family. He calls his sons together in spite of their dysfunction. Joseph is one of Jacob's sons. Joseph, if you remember the story back in chapter 37, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And so think of who's in this room right now. Joseph is in the room with brothers that earlier sold him into slavery. Yet the Lord uses a father to reconcile and bring the dysfunction together. See, that's what a father does. A father will call the mess to himself. A father doesn't look at it and say, ah, I know they had some issues, but they'll be okay. I'm just going to die and just go ahead. I'm just going to give them land. I'm going to give them my inheritance. I'm going to give that to them and let them go. No, no, no. A father calls the dysfunction, the mess to, him, to his own self. And don't think that your kids don't got dysfunction. Oh, your kids are messed up. I'm just telling you. I, I know some churches won't tell you that. Your kids are messed up. My kids are absolutely, I mean, they're, in, they're infected with sin. There's nothing like seeing your cute little baby. Be, the first time you see them be a sinner, that thing hurts your heart, man. First time they grab that toy and be like, no, this is mine. Or the first time they slap you in the face. My son did that to me one time. Like I almost took him and just like sent him across the room. Before he could walk, he knows how to be a sinner. Before he's taught how to sin, he knows how to be a sinner. Twelve sons in the room, four baby mamas. That's what, Jake, that's what Jacob would have had. Like, I'm just trying to show you the dysfunction in the family. I mean, he had Rachel, he had Leah, and he had two servants. Like, he got four baby. These, these 12 kids aren't by one woman. Four different babies. So think of this room as he's about to die. He's calling all the mess himself. Listen, mama can't be the only one dealing with, with, with the kids' issues. Mama can't be the only one. We need a father that will stand in the gap. The Lord uses Jacob, a father, to reconcile his sons. Come all, all y'all come together. I know they sold you into slavery. We're going to see some more dysfunction as we walk through the text. I don't want to jump ahead, but you're going to see some more dysfunction of what else is in the room. But Jacob is used as a reconciliation. The Lord uses him as a reconciliation tool uh, to speak into a lot, his li the lives of his kids. We must be present. We must call our sons together. And so let's keep going. It says, assemble 
and listen. I love that. So he's calling them together and he's telling them, hey, listen to me. It's nothing like listening to your father. Like my, my wife will say to my kids over and over again, stop doing that, stop doing that. But the moment she says, I'm going to tell your father, the whole situation changes. It's not that I do anything differently than she, than she does. It's just that the, a father has a place in his children's life that when they, when they hear that your father's going to hear about this, they automatically shut it down. It says, assemble and listen, oh sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. You know how important this is that Jacob and Israel are mentioned in the same text. Why is that important? If you know the story, if you don't, the, the, Jacob... That was his name by birth, but he wrestles with the Lord in chapter 32 in his name. The Lord changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Now, Bruce Wilkie, a, a commentator says this, Bible commentator says, Jacob and Israel appears seven times in this chapter. Verse number one, verse number two, verse number seven, verse number 16, verse number 24, verse number 28, and verse number 33. The names reflect the strength of Israel and the weakness of Jacob. Jacob's name literally meant he's a deceiver. That's what his name means. Jacob's name means he is a deceiver. So Jacob, I don't know if you guys remember the story with him and his mother, uh, Rebecca. They, They begin to Uh, bring this plan, this scheme together to steal Esau's birthright. And so they do this. And so he's he's known from birth as a shyster, or that's what Jacob is known as, or being uh, somebody that is a deceiver. And so his kids in the room would have known this story. And so he's saying, listen, sons of Jacob, come to me. But he's saying, listen to Israel. What do I mean is listen to Israel. Israel is different. Israel means triumphant with God. And so what Jacob is doing is he's calling his sons together, despite the fact that they know his sin and saying, I know, man, I know you guys know about all of this stuff I've done in my life, but I need you to listen to Israel. Listen, all of us men in here have a little bit of Jacob in us. All of us. And we have a responsibility within our our children to tell them when, when they're age appropriate, tell them about your own sin. How can they rejoice with you over God's salvation of your life if they don't know the sin and the dysfunction that you had in your life. You're not Jesus. You're you're not Jesus discipling your kids. Jesus is Jesus. He's the only one that's without sin. Every other father in here has a little bit of sin in them or a little bit of Jacob in them, a lot of sin, a little bit of Jacob in them, every single father. So he calls his sons together and says, hey, listen, sons of Jacob, listen to Israel. Hear what Israel is about to say. Now, he's going to start with his first son, his oldest. Look at what he says, his oldest son, Reuben. Verse number three. Reuben, you are my firstborn. The might and the first, my might and the first fruit of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Before he calls out his son's, don't, don't miss this. Before he calls out his son's sin, he encourages him. He says, you're my firstborn. You're preeminent in power. You're preeminent in might. He walks him through something so practical. Martin Luther says, spare the rod, spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he's done well. See, some of us as fathers, we have the ability to correct our kids, but we lack the ability to really encourage them. Jacob doesn't do that. Jacob doesn't walk right to his sin, but Jacob says, man, here's some good in you. 
He didn't even kick him out of the family here. He says, man, you still have a plate. You've contributed to this family. And so before he walks him through any one of his sins, he walks him, before he rebukes him, he first encourages Reuben's heart. Then he goes on to say, in verse number four, unstable as water. Like, can you imagine that? He's not whispering to Reuben right now. He's saying this in front of everybody. You're unstable as water. All of the kids are in there. Now, remember, this is a blessing. He just told Reuben that he's unstable. Not just unstable, but you're unstable as water. The, the, the idea behind unstable as water is, is like water crashing into a bank and just being out of control. He's saying you're undisciplined in your life. Why does he say that he's unstable as water? The verse tells us, you're unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up. This is why. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up into my couch. Listen to what happens. Reuben, earlier on in the story, Reuben sleeps with Jacob's, one of Jacob's baby's mothers. Now, remember I said there's dysfunction in the room. Dan and Nephetelli are brothers, are half-brothers of Reuben. They're all in the room. What Jacob just did here was expose that Reuben slept with your mother. Like, do you see the dysfunction that's in this family? So Reuben says, listen, I'm caught. Like, can you imagine that? They're, they're sitting around their father's deathbed. Dan and Nephetelli, the, the sons of Jacob, are probably in there crying they may not, no scripture had, I've searched for this. No scripture said that they knew this beforehand. This may be the first time that they hear, listen, Reuben, your half-brother, slept with your mother. Can you imagine? They probably were like, <laughs> and then they hear that. They probably like, what? Hold on, wait a second. You slept with who? So he calls him out. In fact, he calls him out so much that he stops speaking to him and speaks to the rest of the room. How do I know that? Because it says, because you went up in your father's bed and you defiled it. And then he stops speaking to him and says, he went up in my couch. <laughs> like, can you imagine that? Like, he's sitting there like, man, he's telling Reuben, he said, you will not have preeminence. And he's walking him through because you defiled my bed. And he's, can you believe he went up? In, like, he probably had a moment right there. <laughs> Jacob calls Reuben out on his sin. Listen, that's what we are supposed to do. The dysfunction that's in this room, Jacob calls it to himself. He says, listen, man, I'm not even going to whisper this to you. The entire family needs to hear. Mind you, the mother that he slept with was probably in the room as well. See, there's a possibility that she was in the room as well. And so Reuben doesn't receive his father's inheritance. He says, because you, now, now here's the crazy part. This happened 40 years prior. This incident is not, it's not fresh. It's not just happened. At least 40 years prior, Reuben has defiled his father's bed. But yet, his perversion stuck with him the 40 years. And so what he's saying is, when he says you're unstable as water or you're uncontrolled or you're undisciplined, he's saying you have no control over your passions. Over 40 years ago. Do you see the consequence that sin can have on us? He lost his inheritance because of sin. I said that all of us have a little bit of Jacob, but here's the truth. All of us have a little bit of Reuben in us as well. All of us men, you are, I don't care how gifted and, and, and charismatic you are, how skilled you are, skill cannot keep you where character can. Do not sit and think that you can be gifted 
and lack integrity as it relates to perversion. He's saying, listen, you lost your inheritance because you can't control your desires. This is a dangerous thing for all of us. And all of us, all the men in here, see, I want to be like, I want to be like Job, where Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully on a woman. Now, I don't want to just beat the men up because some of you ladies in here got a little Reuben in you as well. Man, you're like, man, you're talking to me like that? Absolutely. All of us in here struggle and have sins. I told you you're in the spit zone, so one flew and I'm sorry. All of us in here have a little bit of Reuben in us. We have to learn not to control behavior. We got to get at the heart. We got to get at the heart. And so he calls him out. He says, listen, Reuben, you've defiled my bed. He, you went up in my couch. You, you've slept with one of my baby's mothers. One of your brothers, you defiled me, but you disrespected your brothers. Two of your brothers, and you're the oldest son. And you've disrespected. He would have been the page. He was next in line. He would have been the next page. Once Jacob died, he would have been the patriarch in the family. And so over five years, over 40 years later, he calls him out. Now the next two are combined. Verse five, he deals with Reuben's sin. He encourages him, deals with his sin. He goes right to the next two. But he couples these two together, and I'll tell you why. Verse number five, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence and their swords. He says, let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be, oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. Simeon and Levi, I'm sorry, this is a little bit more academic than normal. Simeon and Levi lose inheritance because of their anger. I don't know if you guys remember the story with Simeon and Levi where their sister was raped by the, the prince of, of the Shechemites. And so the sister is raped. They thought Jacob was loose on how he dealt with it. So Simeon and Levi said, well, I'm going to deal with this. So what does he do? He goes to him and he says that the, the one that raped the sister is like, man, I'm so sorry. I want to marry your sister. Simeon and Levi create this plan and say, you can marry her, but you and all of the men, all of the Shechemites must first be circumcised. And so they're circumcised. The scripture says three days later when the soreness set in, first of all, you know that's pain. When the scripture says the soreness set in, that's a good way to talk about it. The soreness sits in three days later, Simeon and Levi walk into the camp and kill all the men. Like every they didn't leave a man alive, took the wives, took like, do you know how dysfunctional that is? You just killed a family's father because of your anger. So it says that he walks in, Simeon and Levi walk in, they kill everybody. What was used in Israel as a blessing? Circumcision was a blessing. That was the covenant. What was used historically as the covenant? The scripture says that Simeon and Levi use it as destruction for a whole nation. And so when he looks at them, he says, listen, you two together are sons of anger. But I love the text because it doesn't say that he cursed them. Notice, it says in verse number seven, curse be their anger. He curses the anger, doesn't curse them. And it's not like they're still not angry. Look at what it says. For it is fierce and in their wrath, for it is cruel. And so in other words, you weren't angry then, you're still angry now. And so I have to pull the inheritance from you. You're not even, and these are the two things that fathers and men deal with consistently, perversion and anger. 
And Jacob is used as a powerful instrument to call out the perversion and the anger within the first three ones. So one after another, three lose the inheritance. Three of them lose it. But the fourth one doesn't. Now, again, this, interestingly, interestingly enough, is 40 years prior too. So all of this happened 40 years prior. Let's keep going, though. Now he gets to the fourth son. Finally, I know y'all are like, man, every one of these sons, like none of them can get it together. Finally, we get one that seemingly has it together, but he still has problems too. Look at verse number eight. He deals with Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, finally, we get to one of the sons. So he skips the inheritance for the first three sons and the mantle falls on the, on the fourth son. Finally, we get to one that seemingly has it together. But here's the crazy thing. Even Judah has issues. How do I know Judah has issues? Because Judah is the one when Joseph was sold into slavery, they said, first, let's kill him. Judah says, no, 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 don't kill him sell him into slavery. So the one that orchestrated his brother being sold is Judah. Not only that, but Judah himself deals with sexual sin. Remember his daughter, you may not remember this, his daughter Tamar is dressed up like a prostitute and his daughter Tamar wants to get impregnated by her father-in-law, so she puts a veil over her face. Judah comes by, ends up sleeping with her. She says, give me your staff and your signet. She takes his staff and his signet. They end up sleeping together. He hears about it. He hears that his daughter, his daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law is pregnant, not just pregnant with one, but pregnant with twins. His daughter-in-law is pregnant with twins. He then says, put her to death. And she says, wait, before you put me to death, the one that impregnated me, I have his stuff. Here it is. Can you imagine Judah that moment? He looked and was like, where did this stuff come from? Like he would have recalled, oh, shoot, I messed up. Now, what makes Judah different than Reuben? How can Reuben fall sexually, lose the inheritance, but Judah falls sexually and not lose his inheritance? Why? Because Judah repents. A man that is serious about engaging his son will be a man that is passionate about repentance. We must model what repentance looks like in our house. To create a culture of repentance, the husband, the father must be the main one saying, I messed up. I'm the one that messed up. And so Judah receives the blessing, but it's not like he's sinless because he received it. He received it based on his repentance and God's sovereign grace. That is why Judah would have received it. Now, Here's what's interesting about the passage, that so far we see that, that Jacob spoke prophetically. We see that Jacob exposed their sin. He encouraged them to live as godly men, but now we're going to see that he points them to the Messiah. Wait, Jesus is in this text? Absolutely, Jesus is in this text. I'm going to show you how. It says in verse number nine, Judah is a lion's club, a cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter is really like a symbol of, a, of the king's power. He just said the kingdom, will not, the kingdom will not leave Judah's house. Do you know that Jesus is known as the lion of Judah? Now, now, here's the thing. Every king in Israel came out of Judah's bloodline. From the first king 
which was Saul, to David, to Solomon, on and on and on, all the way till we get to Jesus. Read Matthew 1. If you're taking notes, read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Judah is mentioned. And so what this father is doing is he's not just speaking a little something into their life. He's saying, listen, I'm pointing you to a savior that will come. A savior that will come. All of this dysfunction in the family, he's going to restore it. So what a father does best, if you hear nothing else, if you take no other notes, a father is a good, godly father when he takes his sons and he points them to the Messiah. He doesn't point them to himself. Jacob here, like this is crazy to me. In my mind this week, I was like, man, you know, it's amazing how, like read Isaiah 53. It's amazing how these uh, these major prophets speak about Jesus before Jesus is even born. Like you get Isaiah, you get Jeremiah, you get Ezekiel. These major prophets are speaking about Jesus. But here's the interesting thing on Father's Day. Hear this. A father is the first one to speak prophetically about the Messiah that is to come. A father. A father. So a father's role, one of the most important, important roles of a father is to speak prophetically about the Messiah. Point our, our kids to Jesus. Listen, the gospel cannot become irrelevant in our homes. Not when a godly father is there. I'm not saying you ladies can't speak the gospel. Absolutely you can. But we need men in our homes that are constantly saying, Jesus saves. Jesus has the ability to save. He forgives sin. Live right because he has the ability to make you live right and to keep you sanctified. Verse number 11, we see more of Jesus here. It says, binding his foil to the vine and his donkey to the choice vine. Do you know in John 15, Jesus says, he doesn't just say, like notice this says choice vine. Jesus says himself in John 15, I am the true vine. These are pointers to the Messiah. These are pointers to what is to come. We get it again. He keeps going on the Messiah. He says, and he washed his garments in wine and his vestures or his clothes in the blood of grapes. This is a direct connection to Revelation. See, this is why I love the Bible because it's so consistent. It's one concert. It's like I heard a quote that says, if you pull a thread in Genesis, Revelations will wrinkle. And it's so true. It's a consistent pattern of seeing Jesus. If you read Revelations 19, I'm gonna read it real quick. A couple of verses in Revelations 19. Revelation 19. He says, now remember what we just read. Let me read it again. He says, he washed his garments with wine and his vestures or his clothes in the blood of grapes. Look at what Revelation 19 says in verse number 13. His clothes and his robe was dipped in blood over and over again in the New Testament. Wine and blood are have a connection. Even when we do communion, We connect wine and blood. And so you see in Revelation, we see him pointing it. He does it again in verse number 15, the B part of 15. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God and the Almighty. So this father doesn't even know about Revelation. He doesn't know what else is to come. But what he knows is is that there is a Messiah that was promised back in Genesis 3 a Messiah that is promised is going to come through Judah's bloodline. And so he, he doesn't just rebuke his sons. He doesn't just correct them on their sin. Correcting, destroying, and, and deconstructing your son's sin without reconstructing it with the gospel is dangerous. 
I told you, if we walked up uh, Halsey and tore down all the houses and didn't rebuild any houses, everybody would be homeless. And so what do we do? We're called, as Father said, deconstruct, but reconstruct with the gospel. That is what Jacob does here. Jacob points them to their need for a savior. He unpacks a Christological prophecy about Jesus Christ, a father. That's what real men do. Real men talk about Jesus. Listen, all of us in here need Jesus. I don't, I don't know where you are in the, the, your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you come to church consistently. Maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't gone to church, which is fine. Not that church saves you. But maybe you've gone through the rhythms and, the, and, and the, the cycle of religion. Listen, what we need is not religion. We need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ. None of us in here, I don't care how spiritual you think you are, none of us in here can save ourselves. None of us. We, all need, we don't meet the requirement of salvation. None of us. It's like some of us, like, like a tall person, I don't know who the tallest person in the room is, but a ta- the tallest person would stand here and be about this height. I'm going to stand here and my son, my youngest son, would stand about here. So it's like all three of us, different heights, going outside and saying, you know what? The requirement for salvation is to jump on the roof. Like one jump, jump on top of the roof of this building. So the tallest person is like, that's easy. I'm closer to the top. So I can jump and make it. And the shortest person is like, I'm too far. I can't jump and make it. Listen to me. None of us can make it. The tallest person is in the same boat as the smallest person. That is what we get in the gospel. None of us, no matter how spiritual you think you are, none of us can jump on top of the roof. You know who jumped on top of the roof? Jesus Christ. One jump, not even on top, he can jump over the roof. And what he does in the gospel is he takes you after he does it, puts you on the roof, and he goes back down where you were. And so in other words, he stood condemned in your place. And now we get to stand before God as though we made it over on top of the roof and we practically, we're still on the ground. But yet we get, to, we get to stand before the Lord as though we met the requirement of salvation. Do you know the requirement of salvation is perfection? Like forget this, oh, I'm a good person. Listen, good doesn't get you into heaven. Good doesn't do it. You know what you need? Perfection. You know who we get that through? Jesus Christ. And so a father here speaks the gospel, speaks about the Messiah that is to come, encourages his sons. Go through the, he speaks it about 12, uh, 12 of his sons, he speaks into each one of their lives. Go through the rest of them. But it's so interesting in this Old Testament passage that we get Jesus. Listen, if you're struggling in here, you don't know the love of a father. On Father's Day, you're like, man, I personally, I grew up in a, in a fatherless home. Yesterday, I had uh, all of the men together. Before we start, I always do this thing because I always want to know how many of us grew up in a fatherless home. So I said, man, raise your hand if you did not grow up with a father. More, almost half the room raised their hand. Let's try it now. How many in the room grew up and you didn't, like, you didn't have a male presence, a father in your house? Raise your hand. That did not work. That did not help me. Most of the room was supposed to raise their hand. Anyway, a father in the house, is a, is, he's, a, he's a vital part of the family. You may have grown up in a house that you either don't have a father or you grew up in a house where your father may have been dysfunction even within your father. You didn't know how to receive love from your father. Through God the Father, we get to see love. 
How do I know? Because it says in John 3.16 that he loved the world so much that he did what? He gave his son. 1 John 3.1 says, see what kind of love the father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And then it ends and says, and so we are. We get to see the love of a father by looking at God and how he dealt with our sin through sending his son, Jesus Christ. And so on this Father's Day, I want to encourage you, fathers in the room, be godly men. Call out sin in your house, call out sin in your own life, but ultimately point your family to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for an example of a father that did not have it perfect, but had enough in him that he understood that he needed to point his family to the gospel. He needed to point his family to Jesus. Father, that is what we need today. We don't need self-help books. We don't need encouraging words. What we need is the gospel of Jesus faithfully ministered to us. I'm so encouraged today to see that a father named Jacob did not call his sons out on sin and leave them there. But he called them out and says, hey, listen, there's a Messiah that's coming. There's a dysfunction in this room. I get it. Starting with me, I got dysfunction. But we have a savior that is not trifling, that is not dysfunctional, that is not ratchet. We got a savior that is pure and perfect. And through him, we get eternal life. If we've believed in him, not a check off the box, but a submission of our life. Father, would you encourage the believer in here? The person that doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would do some, woo them to you. Woo their hearts to you. Encourage the fathers in this room. Let us all grow up and be godly men. Let us never move from the place of thinking we have it down packed as a father. No, we got work and we're constantly before your throne. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.